Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would still our souls. Whatever worldly cares or anxieties we may have, Lord, may we still them in your presence, the presence of the maker of all, the creator of all. May we know that uh, you love us and that you have promised us eternal life which far eclipses whatever, uh, whatever griefs we encounter here. So Lord, still our souls, prepare our hearts to receive your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have noticed we are continuing onward in Matthew chapter eight. This is not an expository series through the book of Matthew. Uh, though we were in Matthew 8 last week. Uh, the lectionary readings are giving us some sequential ones here, or roughly sequential. I've skipped over a little bit here. But as we might recall from last week, in, Matthew's, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, we read of Jesus' authority in his teachings, in his word, And then Matthew 8 transitions to where now we are seeing the authority of Jesus in his works, in his miracles. Last week, we considered how Jesus is one who possesses authority, power, command. How are we going to respond to him in his might and in his authority? Because make no mistake, you will respond Confronted with the authority of Christ, you will not be left unchanged. But what direction are you going to go? Matthew here gives us two miracles, two great demonstrations of Christ's power and two responses to Jesus. In the first miracle, we see the power of Jesus Christ over the elements of creation, over the weather, things like snow and ice, here, wind and waves. In the second miracle, we see the power of Jesus Christ over the spiritual forces of wickedness, over demons and the spiritual realm. We will see that Jesus has power and authority over both the natural realm, winds, waves, and the spiritual realm, spirits, demons. Of course, we live in the modern world, and uh, a world that has been shot through with modernistic materialism, which attempts to deny the spiritual realm altogether. All that there is is what you can see and hear. The physical universe is all there is. Now, it may act like it's new, this brand new idea, but actually it's a very old idea. It goes all the way back to the empiricism of Epicurus, who denied the existence of spirits or the soul or a spiritual realm, and instead held the universe was infinite and eternal, and everything that exists is physical So the natural world is all there is, and all that happens in the natural world is simply the result, 
Epicurus says, of atoms in motion. That's all there is. Just atoms in motion. Just these brute natural forces, the winds and the waves, as it were. That's all there is. Modern materialism agrees with Epicurus there. It's not a new idea. It is the resurgence of an old one. But in in reaction to modern materialism has also been the opposite uh, reaction, which there always is throughout human history. Uh, The opposite reaction of postmodern spiritualism. It's not just Christians, but many others in our day and age who have found the materialistic account of reality lacking. As Shakespeare has Hamlet put it, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And so there's been this opposite movement and impulse to go towards the esoteric, the experiential, to spiritism. You see it in the move towards Eastern religions, New Age spirituality, fortune-telling, ghost hunters, and the occult. There's been this opposite uh, movement and fixation upon the whole notion of the spiritual world and spiritual beings and spirituality. So we have both in our modern context, in fact. And in our gospel passage this morning, Jesus Christ claims rightful ownership of both realms. He is revealed to be the Lord of the natural world and of the spiritual world, for his lordship is over all. We begin with the lordship of Christ over the spiritual world, or excuse me, the material world. We begin with the lordship of Christ over the material world in verses 23 to 27. Jesus has been healing and crowds are beginning to swarm around him. And you'll notice in the gospels when this happens, sometimes Jesus stays a while and continues to minister, lets that crowd form and ministers to the crowd. But at other times, he chooses to depart. He knows when it is best to allow himself to be well-known and recognized, and he knows when he needs to withdraw and operate at a lower profile. And Jesus has decided it is time for him and the disciples to go to the other side. Verse 18, the other side that is of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And so he gets into the boat with his disciples. And after they've set out, verse 24 says, There arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. The Greek word for storm here is seismos. You may have heard of seismic activity, usually associated with a shaking, a moving, an earthquake. One commentator points out that there are, in fact, three earthquakes, so to speak, three um, seismoi in Matthew's gospel. There's one here, one at Jesus' death, and one at his resurrection. So there may have been a literal earthquake involved here, which would help account for the high waves. But the text also mentions in verse 26, winds. So if there was an earthquake contributing to the waves, 
then there was in fact a confluence of factors coming together here from all direction as it were. Atoms in motion, brute nature, natural forces shaking and beating and blowing against the boat, threatening to capsize it and the boat is being swamped. And what is Jesus doing about this? Verse 24, but he was asleep. Now, imagine if you were the disciples here. A great storm, a seismic storm, a seemingly life-threatening situation here. And Jesus isn't awake. He's sleeping right through it. My wife, who's not here this morning, knows what that might be like. I have been known to sleep through a remarkable number of things. Alarm clocks, tornado sirens, crying babies, you name it. I have not slept through a seismic, catastrophic storm at sea in a boat, though. That would be a first. So you're the disciples, and this is the situation. How might you be tempted to feel? How are you feeling in this moment? Any number of things, perhaps. Fear would definitely be there, I would guess, for most of us. Verse 25 says, So they went and woke him, woke Jesus, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now that seems like a pretty decent thing to say. They acknowledge their dangerous situation. They ask the Lord to save them. Their words look pretty all right. But Jesus isn't just the one who hears our words. He searches minds and hearts, and he detects through these words in the hearts of his own disciples the unmistakable presence of fear. They are genuinely afraid in this moment that they are all going to die. Again, though, you might think, well, good for them. That sounds reasonable. Earthquake, winds, waves threatening to sink the boat. Fear would be an appropriate response here, wouldn't it? Not to Jesus. Verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. I wonder how you'd answer Jesus' question. Why are you afraid? Um, Surrounded by a storm and winds and waves and the rocking of the boat and the water pouring in. And why am I afraid? If they were to answer that question by looking around them and pointing out all the things happening on every side, that would be to miss the point entirely. They shouldn't be looking at what's around them, but at the one who is there with them. Unlike the great faith that the centurion demonstrated earlier in this chapter, as we saw last week, Jesus' own disciples are given the designation, O you of little faith. They didn't understand in full who Jesus really was. They were right there with him. 
They traveled with him. They heard his teaching. They dined with him. They had seen as many miracles. And still, it just wasn't quite clicking just who this was that they were dealing with here. Who was he? The kind of person who can do what verse 26 says Jesus did. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus rebukes the disciples, then he rebukes the winds and the sea, and he rebukes them, as it were, as he would rebuke a misbehaving child. With a word, he quells the raging, and instead of a great storm, there is a great calm. The word for calm there refers specifically to the unruffled surface of a lake where there are no waves or ripples. Have you been down to Lake Michigan when there's wind blowing and the waves, you hear the waves crashing against the shore and the rocks and you see the water going up into the air? And have you gone down on another day when when there is no wind and it's just still, it's like a pond almost, there's no there's no waves to, you know, to speak of. That's what this stormy lake went to in a moment of time at the rebuke of Jesus. You see, he was not like some tricky uh, magician who timed his rebuke just right. He saw the sun starting to shine through the clouds. And then, you know, when he said it, then gradually, pretty soon, eventually it it got pretty still-ish. No, it went from a great storm to a great calm, to a smooth, unruffled surface of the lake so that you can see your reflection in it. That is the authority of the word of Christ over the natural creation. Brute nature, flying atoms. And the men marveled, verse 27, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? That's a good question. We will come back to it. But we have seen now the lordship of Christ over the material world, over the forces of nature. Now we come to the lordship of Christ over the spiritual world, over the paranormal, the demonic, the spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places, the lordship of Christ over demons in verses 28 to 34. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he said, let's cross over the Sea of Galilee. He was going to the country of the Gadarenes, verse 28, or as he terms it, the other side. Crossing from Jewish land and territory to the other side, the realm of the Gentiles, their land and territory. We saw a hint of this with the Roman centurion last week. Can he dwell among, can he be in the house of an unclean Gentile? Jesus is now going to their land, which is a remarkable thing. He escapes the crowds of people from all over Judea by going to the land of the unclean and the uncircumcised Gentiles. 
This, these latter verses of chapter 8 are just teeming with ceremonial uncleanness. We have Gentiles, tombs, pigs. In the Old Testament law, you became unclean through contact with anyone who themselves were unclean. So Gentiles were viewed as unclean. They don't observe our kosher laws. They could have touched anything at any time. Don't touch a Gentile. You also become unclean through contact with a dead body. So tombs. And you become unclean through contact with an unclean animal, such as pigs. Notably, pigs are not kosher. And when Jesus comes to the other side, verse 28, immediately, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. We're given more information about these men in the other Gospels who focus on just one of them, whereas Matthew speaks of two. These men were possessed not just by one demon apiece, or even two demons apiece, but it is said that they were possessed by a whole legion of demons. A legion, a Roman legion in the time of Caesar Augustus was at least 6,000 men. These men, perhaps, had thousands of demons who were afflicting them specifically, taking up residence within them. And so they did not live in a house. They lived out among the tombs. And night and day they went out among the tombs in the mountains, naked, crying out and cutting themselves with stones. And people from the nearby town tried to bind them with chains, but they were given supernatural power to wrench apart the chains and tear the shackles in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. We don't know the backstory of these two men. We don't know why it was that these two men should have been afflicted with so many, a host of demons. Reading the New Testament, we can't say that demon possession always corresponds with some great sin. Even little children are possessed in the Gospels. We don't know their backstory, but we do know that what was happening to them was above the ordinary. Two young men, one day, began hearing a voice inside their head, which would turn into voices. And those voices would multiply and get louder and louder until it was all they could hear anymore. And until they were just consumed by them. And what do these two demon-possessed men do? As soon as Jesus arrives, they meet him and they cry out to him. Verse 29, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, these are the demons talking through the men that they are possessing. And they address him as the son of God. No one has used this title for Jesus yet in the book of Matthew. No one. Except Satan in chapter 4. There's this great question, who is Jesus? Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he this? Is he that? Jesus usually calls himself the son of man. Demons encounter him, they say, the son of God. You get the feeling they knew him already. 
This points to the fact of Jesus' pre-existence, that in the incarnation he did not begin to be, but the Son of the Father pre-existed that, and he comes into the world as the divine Son, and the demons recognize this. The demons know who he is, and they know what he's going to do. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that the day of judgment will come. That there will be a last judgment in which Satan and all his angels will be thrown into the lake of fire for everlasting punishment. All of Satan's aim and all the realm of of demonic forces in the world, all of their aim is not to overcome that. They know they can't. But their aim is to cause as much havoc and destruction and pull as many people down with them as they can. What happens next is a bit surprising. Verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and drowned in the waters. What is the significance of this? Luke tells us in his gospel that the demons explicitly say, do not send us into the abyss. They don't want to be sent there. If they're going to be cast out, don't send us to the abyss. That is to hell, the place of torment uh, in anticipation of the final judgment. Instead, they ask if they could be cast into this herd of pigs. That's somewhere else they prefer to be rather than the abyss. Jesus grants this request. He he says, go. And the pigs rush down the steep bank and drown in the waters, prefiguring ultimately the final destination of all the demonic host. They will one day be cast into the lake of fire, just as the pigs ran down and were drowned in the Sea of Galilee. This shows us clearly Jesus' authority over the spiritual world. Legions of demons fall at his feet and beg him for mercy. He casts them out with a word, go, and they are gone. His victory is not in question. It is a given. The time is coming when they will be destroyed. Jesus shows up and there's not this climactic fight as it were, with a legion of demons. No, it's just, they're they're just all begging and then a word and then they're off and then they're drowned. (laughs) Jesus has authority over the spiritual realm. And if that wasn't unexpected enough, demon pigs drowning in a lake, we get even more unexpected perhaps in verses 33 and 34. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all that city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they... How would you finish that sentence? What would you think that they would say? They worshipped him. They asked, where did you get this power? They said, I have sick people. I have a demon-possessed... They begged him to leave their region. Why did they beg him to leave their region? 
A variety of possibilities have been put forth. A very common one is they are upset about the pigs. Okay, this was a great herd of pigs. Uh, probably the whole town used this for their food, and then now they're all gone. He cast out the demons into the pigs. Now they're drowned. He ruined their, their economy. And they want Jesus to leave because they don't want any further damage done to their economy, as it were. The problem with that is the text doesn't say that the herdsmen uh, told him especially what had happened to the pigs. But it says, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed man. And another gospel describes them as in great fear making this request. Fear, not rage, not anger. So what's going on here? few commentators have suggested we should think about the fact that these two men were outcasts of the community and they bore thousands of demons. Why would thousands of demons reside in two men kept on the outskirts of the community, chained down as it were out there? At least they tried to chain them down out there. And there's this idea of the scapegoat, of a community deciding that all of its ills, all of its troubles, they're just going to put it all on one person, put it all on a couple people, and they're really the bad ones. And we're going to punish them, and then we all feel free. We all feel better about ourselves. These two men, bearing thousands of demons out on the outskirts of the community, functioned as a kind of scapegoat for the town, perhaps we might say. Thousands of demons rest on them, and then they feel more secure about themselves. They have all the bad stuff, and we're we're okay. Because when a demon's cast out, it's always a question, where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? So if they have all those demons, that's their business. Um, At least they're not here. Jesus had gotten rid of their scapegoat. The demons had to go somewhere else now, but there's nowhere to go seemingly, but back to the community for them to have to deal with. The pigs in this way could be seen to represent unclean Gentiles. Pigs, unclean animals are often in scripture associated with Gentiles, so the pigs could represent the community themselves. Jesus has come and he's upset the social order. He has upset the economic order. Order, regardless of the explanation we might give for why they asked him to leave, whether it was greed, servile fear, or the selfishness of the scapegoat, they don't want Jesus around. That's the point. The authority of Christ has been revealed, and they don't want it. They don't want him. Leave. Please, please leave. Two miracles. Two great demonstrations of Christ's power over two realms and two responses to Jesus. What are the two responses? Either in recognition of Jesus' authority, you could humble yourself, marvel at him and say, what sort of man is this? And follow after him as his disciples did. Or, recognizing Jesus' authority, you could beg him to get out of here. 
His authority can either make you afraid and uncomfortable so that you want him to go far away, or it can make you marvel at him so that you want to follow him all the days of your life. May we trust in Christ and follow him. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. What sort of man is this? The son of God made man. The word of God made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us, come to redeem, come to save, come to set free. He commands the winds and the waves and they obey. And the legions of darkness tremble and fall down at his presence, whimpering and begging for mercy. When Jesus comes to heal, nothing can stop him. When Jesus comes to save, it's no use resisting him. O you of little faith, why do you doubt? Do not fear, only believe. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for your great goodness in sending your son into this world. We thank you that he came as one who had authority, authority over the natural world, authority over the spiritual world. And Lord, as we see him in his glory, may we fall down before him. May we marvel and adore and follow. Lord, grant that we would have this grace so to follow him all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.